This is Look West, a podcast from California's Assembly Democrats. I'm Joel Wolfork with Look West. Our series, California for Black Lives, continues now with a conversation with two women of color who have been working to end discrimination and breed a more diverse and inclusive society for decades. Dr. Shirley N. Weber, a California State Assembly member from San Diego, and Rosalind Taylor O'Neill, widely regarded as one of the top diversity and inclusion consultants in the world. This week, Dr. Weber expanded on her decades of educating people about the lives of African Americans through her time at San Diego State University and years of writing laws as an assembly member by introducing legislation to bring back affirmative action and provide reparations to the descendants of former slaves. We spoke to Dr. Weber a couple of days before the vote on ACA 5. Thank you, Dr. Weber, for joining us today on the Look West podcast. Well, thank you very much for the invitation. Appreciate it. So you've been you've been you spent over three decades uh, trying to explain the lives of African Americans in this country, uh, the struggles faced by this community. We find ourselves in another time of mass protest and uh, discussion about race. Just how do you feel, um, just generally now and this compared to other uh, protests that you've you've been a part of for the last 30, 40 years, your whole life. Exactly. Well, you know, um, I want back my other decades because it's been 40 years that I spent uh, at the university trying to <laughs> explain to individuals what life is like and, and the, the conditions in which we exist and, and things that have to happen. And um, so and, and I look at the as I pointed out to others, the you know, the Watts riot in 1965 was the National Guards were camped on our front porch on our de- on our grass uh, right there on the corner between 45th and on 45th and Broadway. So uh, so I've, I've seen them all. I've, I've seen, you know, whether it's a Rodney King, whether it's a Martin Luther King a protest and the riots that existed. This one is different than the others because this one has gone international. And I think it's international because young people have the capacity to share the information around the world. They don't have to wait for CNN or ABC or whomever to validate their movement. They're validating it every day and shocking the world with the videos that they have. And so, you know, so this is this is a little bit of different time. I am optimistic that we will take advantage of it, that we will not just simply window dress and do the things we've done in the past uh, and, and rebuild the buildings that got burnt, those kinds of things, and then end up uh, 20 years later in the same place where we were, uh, you know, with regards to social justice issues, how African-Americans are treated in this country, and those kinds of things that are so, so fundamental. I'm really glad to hear that you are feeling positive about it. Um, that's because we've seen this happen over and over where things get attention and then it kind of dwindles down. But I'm also really glad to hear that it sound, this seems different to you, that you've seen it go international. That was going to be my next question. When I'm looking back at some of the protests around the Watts riots, um, back, even back before that with uh, Martin Luther King and the civil rights, I see the crowd in this, in this historical footage I'm looking at is mainly black people. But when I go out here in Sacramento and look online, and like you said, even worldwide, there's a really diverse group that has come together. What do you think that says about this movement and how important is it that it's not only people who look the same protesting? Well, you, you know, one of the things that happened, um, I did an article um, some while ago when Obama was running for president and when he won Iowa, or Idaho, which one of it was, I think it was Iowa. And I did this article called uh, Planting Trees Without Seeing the Forest. 
And I looked at myself for the last, for the 30, 40 years that I have been teaching Africana studies and not only teaching African-American young men, but, but white young kids and, and Latinos and others. And then I began to realize that there's planting those seeds of difference. Uh, basically, when they all get together, create a force of change. And, and, and I think we see that. And, and, and it's interesting because when we were talking about doing things in education, particularly with the development of Africana studies across the nation, we kept telling people education is powerful, that we have to change what we teach people because then you change people's perception of the world. And while we don't recognize that, those who own and control the ivory tower truly understand that it is an ivory tower and they want to keep it ivory. And, uh, and so when we start talking about making everyone required to take ethnic studies or, be, or beginning to in infiltrate the universities and actually have those requirements that were there so that when I finished teaching after 40 years, if you walked in my classroom, you couldn't tell whether it was an Africana studies class or not because probably a third of the students were black, but the rest were all kinds of students who were eager to come and to learn. And when we take kids to South Africa to talk about the issues of apartheid, you know, we probably, I took 40 some students at one time, probably 20 or 15 or 20 were African-Americans. The rest were everybody else learning about apartheid. And so what happens is when you start giving people the truth, it changes hearts. That's why we have a bill to try to make everyone required to take ethnic studies at the university and, and, and one at the, at the um, uh, lower level. And when you teach that history, you change the very culture of the nation and the things that are happening. So part of it is a product of that, that, that we have access to information and we've begun to change the, how we teach young people and how we change those minds. And so you do see, you do see a completely different a group that's there uh, that's beginning to basically protest and be engaged. And the media has a lot to play in it. The media has tremendous role to play. Uh, when you studied the civil rights movement, you'd realize that King, them were marching forever. And it was only when uh, the press went down there and saw them turning dogs on children and water hoses on old ladies that, that people sitting in their comfortable houses in San Francisco could look at it and be appalled. And I think that people looking at, at uh, Floyd and being appalled is a part of that whole uh, bringing information into people's homes and obviously into their hearts. Yeah. So you mentioned education. Um teaching people about the hearts and minds of others around them. And that's how we're, your students kind of healed and came together. So education is one of the ways that as a legislator, you've introduced laws that will um, uh, help black people. Um, now that we have this, this national movement, do you feel like you have, um, the, I guess to say the wind behind your sails? Uh, what, what do we do? Um, uh, what, what is the next step? What do we use this momentum for? Well, you know, we do have some of that. We do have some of the momentum. We still have to work hard. I'm, you know, I'm dealing with the affirmative action bill and the reparations bill that's coming up this week in the legislature. And, and I've got to work hard. I've got to you know, help people connect the dots because they see what's happening in the streets in terms of law enforcement. And the question is, does that, does that have any impact upon equal opportunity and access for young people in, this, in the state, people of color? Uh, have we done all we can and probably haven't to basically make sure that everyone has access and feels a part of, of all the things that are California and make sure that our, whatever wealth that we have in this country, whatever the good things that happen, whatever educational systems, that everyone has access to it. If they don't, you're gonna have the same level of frustration. Even if you change the police department, you're gonna have the same level of frustration. So 
So we're dealing with all of those issues and all of those are interrelated if we're going to try to bring change. So we've got a, a, a bill coming up. We've got reparations coming up as well. And, and that's been an issue that folks have not felt African-Americans deserve reparations. And so we're optimistic. In fact, we, we strongly believe that bill will be passed. That will, and as, as a part of reparations, this we're looking at being able to educate California about its role in slavery and the impact of slavery so that uh, we will be uh, looking at ways in which we can get the information to all Californians about slavery and, and how it still impacts them today because folks have a tendency to say, well, that was my forefathers. I'm not responsible for what they did. You may not be responsible for what they did, but you're benefiting from what they gave you, which is the resources of the state to live a better life. And so you may not have done it, but you have rejected what they gave you either. Uh, so we've, we've, those are bills coming forward, for, uh, and we've, we're very optimistic because we've tried to wait for the federal government to do what was right in terms of reparations. They have not done it. So now we have to let, make sure that California leads the way, as we often have done, to, for the rest of the nation. So you've introduced bills that would help uh, African Americans, and then you have to go talk to your colleagues and tell them why it's important. You mentioned they still, that still a lot of people don't think um, the African-Americans deserve um, reparations. Does this movement make it easier for you to talk to your colleagues? Um, does it help them understand where you're coming from? I think the movement makes it, it, makes it somewhat easier <clears throat> to address these issues with them. They can't deny racism. They can't deny what they see on television. But is this the, is this the answer to the problem uh, is always a question. Um, we've had a number of folks who were on the fence, <clears throat> who are now coming across the fence and basically saying, okay, I get it now. You know, I see what's happening. I see the frustration. I see the misuse. I see the abuse that has happened. And so we're finally getting folks to, to acknowledge that. Uh, everybody's looking to see, is California actually going to live up to, its, to what it's supposed to be saying? Is it really the, the state that leads instead of the one that follows? So, uh, you know, the, 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 where we didn't have a lot of leadership support before, uh, all of our leaders are now are saying, yes, we have to support this legislation uh, because it, it really is shines a light on whether or not we just talk about the beauties and the wonders of California or where we open up the opportunity and make it available to everybody. So if everything goes perfectly with ACA5, you convince, you get the 54 votes, What's the next step? Does that then go to the ballot? What, what do you see if everything Well, if uh, everything goes if everything goes well this week with 54, believe it or not, I got to go to the Senate and get 27. OK, um, so it's, <laughs> it's a process. It's a process. Uh, and but but if we are able to get 54, uh, the Senate, I don't think, wants to be the, the, the agency that that kills affirmative action in the state. So I think at that point it makes it a tiny bit easier to go to the next house and say, hey, your colleagues are down the street gave us two thirds and that's a hard one to get because it's, it's an assembly you know, situation. We need 27 over here. So hopefully the leadership of, of the second house, the Senate, will also feel the, the, the need to, that we've got to step up and demonstrate it. Uh, we've had folks doing the Twitter thing all weekend long about don't talk to me anymore about Black Lives Matter if you can't vote for AB, ACA 5 and, and, 30, and, you know, and, and 3121. So those are, those are all words that are on the lips of, of constituents. They've been calling. They're working with those individuals. And so, um, you know, we have to go to the next house. And once we do that, we have to do it all by June 25th. So we got just a couple of weeks. Uh, and then we, then we can begin the campaign statewide. To put it, it'll be on the ballot in November. And we've got to get every person who believes in social justice and equal opportunity to go to the ballot and vote for ACA 5. 
Um, you mentioned that this is a, a process. I know that it takes a long time to get bills passed, and sometimes they don't get passed. Um, when you when you're out in the community and talking to groups, I'm sure they want to see things get done. You know, by June 25th or by tomorrow. How do you how do you stay so patient yourself after spending you know decades fighting for justice? And how do you try to explain this political process to people who maybe um, aren't involved in it, have as much knowledge in it as you? Well, you know, uh, we've been able to, interestingly enough, pass things rather quickly, which compared to what other states have been able to do. You know, when we did uh, 392, people thought, oh, that takes about 10 years to get police reform and change. It took us really a year to get it done. Um, because I try to use an army to get it done. It's not just Shirley Weber. You know, there's 250 organizations behind me that are calling and walking and doing various things. And the same is true with these bills. We, we started back in the fall, although people have been talking about affirmative action for and reform for a long time. We actually started in the fall, and we're now at a point where we're bringing these bills to, to the floor, and we hope to have uh, some that goes beyond that. But I, you know, I use, I because I'm a student of history, and taught history. You know, I use history as an example of, of folks who, who understood how to stay focused and who took far more than any of us ever dreamed about, you know? And uh, when people try to turn me around and say, well, it's not time, we shouldn't do it, you know, da, 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 da. I have to, I, so, I, sometimes I think about that and oh, I'm tired, you know, whatever. And then I have to think about, you know, those folks on the bridge in, in, in Selma, you know, who didn't know what was on the other side, but took the bridge anyway. And even when they were turned around, they regrouped and came back again, that they were persistent. And sometimes, you know, folks ended up in jail for months and months and all kinds of things, yet they never turned around and they never gave up. And I tell young people, I said, you know, you, you, you claim that, you know, that, that you'd be better and stronger than the people in the 60s, okay? Demonstrate it, you know, demonstrate it. You gotta stay focused. It's not, it's not a quick splash in the pan. You gotta keep watching it and you gotta keep monitoring it and you have to be persistent about what you want. And uh, so I, I think as our, as our young people, I tell them all the time, look at Eyes on the Prize, look at the movies, read the books, see how long these people stay focused. And there's some who've been involved with the civil rights movement since, you know, since the 50s that are still around. These folks that are very, you know, that are up there in age and they started off as little kids. And, and I have friends who talk about how they walked in, in, in Montgomery and their grandfather was in the bus boycott, my girlfriend, and, and how he walked every day and refused to ride anything because he was in the protest for 14 months. I mean, you know, persistence, persistence. And when you, and our kids need to learn that. They need to learn the legacy of perseverance and persistence because that's what that's what gets it done and so it's nice to think that it can be done quickly and some things can be done uh, quickly but oftentimes even when they're done quickly if we get bills passed now look how long we have suffered to get these bills passed you know it's not that just oh, you came up with this idea today it's the fact that this issue was uh, how many it wasn't just Floyd who, who, who died it's a whole litany of people who died and who were whose whose death basically becomes the the foundation for us moving forward and so uh, it's it's been it's been a journey you know and and none of us have been so smart and so slick that we could get it all done real quick you know uh, it takes <laughs> a lot of us working very very hard uh, and focused on on trying to bring this change and uh, and so um, you know I I tell young people to just just pay attention read your history and stay focused. And realize that you come from a group of people who have who've, who've waded through the storm and yet got to the other side. So educating themselves, uh, reading reading books. What about 
what do they do now to take action? You go on social media and tag your lawmaker. Does that does that help? Most most definitely tag your lawmaker. Let them know they all these lawmakers now read Twitter and and Facebook and Snapchat. They all do, but I don't. It's funny. <laughs> they all read them. <laughs> they send me copies of all the stuff that's out there, and and I read my, what my staff gives me. But I'm too busy to even get into that stuff. But um, but yeah, they all do. They pay attention, and people pay attention to those who do that. No question, do that, and then you know follow through, join something. I always tell people, you know, uh, when a, when a crisis comes, it's not a time to start an organization. You already you should be in something already, so that when the crisis comes, you all you have to do is call a meeting. You know, you don't have to find folks like you. You should be with folks who like you and and who are like you and, and basically can rally the cause. Then make sure you follow it all the way through. There's nothing more powerful than the than the voting booth, you know, and, and, and making sure you vote in every election. Uh, someone was telling me the other day when we were talking about Trump and what have they said, you know, they looked at all the black folks who did not vote. And, and, and that margin of victory uh, that we could have had in, in a different direction. So uh, whether we, you know, whether you love somebody or not, sometimes we have often voted for the least, you know, the, the one with the, who will do the least amount of damage. Uh, but you got to vote. We, we see that you got to vote. And so people need to be engaged and they need to vote at the local level. What you who you have as a city council member has a profound impact on what your police department is going to be like. Because they're the ones who fund the police. Yeah. They're the ones who write the policy for the police. So you, we need to, and they're the ones who, who give contracts and create jobs and all those kinds of things. So our local officials, our school board members, determining what our kids are going to learn and not going to learn and who's going to be in or out of whatever's going on. All of those folks, should we should be looking at them carefully. And then we should be preparing ourselves to run for those offices. What do you say to... I guess people that don't feel the the need to vote, they don't see how it's affecting them. And then how can we, as a lawmaker, how can we uh, just make it, how can we make them see it? How, how can we get people to have that hope? Well, you know, you know, when people tell me that they don't, they don't like to vote because uh, they don't know this or they don't, it's not going to affect my life, you know, which is kind of crazy uh, that's there. Uh, sometimes you just have to say Donald Trump. You know, and that in itself makes people wake up. Everybody's affected, even those in the people who people who are protesting in the street now are getting some kind of Gestapo kind of police behavior that's going on. You know why? Because you didn't vote. You didn't think you know, you didn't think that had any connection to you. Everything has a connection to you. And if you delve any deep enough, you'll see all the things that were defunded and all the environmental issues. So those who and, and so I think what happens is that if you join something. If you join an organization, a community organization, whether it's NWCP, Urban League, Youth for This, Youth for That, you will eventually learn because somebody's going to bring you in there to tell you something that happened in the world that affects you. But if you stay home and just look at the television 24-7 and you don't pay attention, then you miss the fact that it's impacting you. You'll, you'll probably get it when you realize that you didn't get your job or you didn't get a raise or you didn't get health care or you got sick and couldn't basically get yourself well. Then you realize that the government is failing you mm -hmm. and then you'll blame the government. But the reality is you are the government. And so uh, so oftentimes when people tell me things like that, I just go pull out three or four things that they did not know that directly affected their lives. You know, and, and, and whether it's national or whether it's local, you know, th that uh, you need to understand that these folks are making decisions every day about you. And the question is, are you, do they think about you at all? And most of the time they don't because we don't vote. 
And I sometimes I give them examples of when I've cam- had the campaign and, and how different campaigns responded differently to poor neighborhoods. And uh, they would go there only if they had time, only if they had this, had that. And, and then the other communities, they go to them all the time. And, and main reason why, because they were considered four out of four voters, which means they voted in every election, small and large. Uh, and if you're a four out of four voter, you are a, a, a prized person because they know that if it rains, if the dog eats all your ballots, if whatever happens, you <laughs> are going to vote no matter what. And so as a result, that has a tendency to say to you, this is a voter. Where if you're one out of four, hey, if you wake up in the morning and your girlfriend says, I can't stand you no more, you're not going to go vote. You know, you're going to find something else to do because you're, you're now you're emotionally upset over the day. And so people don't spend time with you because you spend a lot of time with a person. Then you call them back and they go, oh, I forgot. I had to go to work or my clothes wasn't ironed, whatever the deal is, you know. But a four out of four. They're there no matter what, you know, and uh, and so people, I tell people that all the time. If you want to be heard, you got to be the four out of four. You cannot be a one out of four. Otherwise, people ignore you. And that's just real. Uh, Dr. Assemblymember Shirley Weber, thank you so much for joining us on the Look West podcast today. Thank you. Appreciate it. Dr. Weber did get the 54 votes needed to pass ACA 5, the measure that would ask voters if now is the time to reinstate affirmative action in California. In fact, ACA 5 received more votes than it needed. The final vote in the Assembly was 60 to 14. The measure now goes to the State Senate. Assembly Bill 3121, a measure to create a task force to study reparations proposals, cleared the Assembly by passing on a 60 to 12 vote. It will also head to the Senate. Rosalind Taylor O'Neill has spent decades helping businesses, nonprofits, and a host of others find ways to diversify their organizations and explain why it is so important. She spoke to us from her offices in New York City. Uh, good morning to you, Rosalind, or, or good afternoon, I should say, on the East Coast. Yes, good afternoon. And thank you for joining us on the Look West podcast. So I've looked through some of your accomplishments before you come in today. Um, 100 top executives in America, 100 most influential blacks in corporate America, top executives in diversity. You've been working in this space for over 30 years. Would you just tell us how you got started? Well... It's interesting. I um, got my degree, my master's degree in social work and left the school, was looking for a job and saw a job as a recruiter for Lincoln National Life, which is now Lincoln Financial in Fort Wayne, Indiana. And I grew up in Louisville, Kentucky. So it was uh, reasonably close to where I grew up. I took the job and my work was to source for very very senior executives, um, African Americans and white women. This is 1974, so I've actually been in this 40 some odd years, um, a very long time. And I went, I found people who were incredibly talented and they came, moved their families, came to Fort Wayne, Indiana, 12 to 18 months later, they were saying, I've got to leave. And I was working for the um, CEO, Ian Rowland, and he said to me, why are people leaving? And I said to him, I don't know, but I want to find out. And that was the beginning of my journey of trying to figure out why some environments work for members of certain groups and the same environment doesn't work as well for members of another group. 
So I began to try to figure out what makes an environment work for 90% of the people. You know, that's the best you can get, by the way. Yeah. 90%. <laughs> oh, okay. 10% oh, well, are not going to be happy no matter what. <laughs> no, no matter what they have. <laughs> that's fine. So what, what sort of things did you find? Um, what can, um, you know, companies or organizations, groups uh, do, you know, to, to make a more inclusive uh, culture? So here's what I found in the 40 plus years. The first thing that's really important is to understand that as human beings, we naturally like people who we see as similar and we are suspicious of people we see as different. It's the way in which human brains have evolved. So someone new comes into the organization and I find out that like me, they like sports cars. And from that point on, we start at a place where I am more likely to listen to them. And when I listen to them, I'm more likely to get great ideas. And the more great ideas I get from them, the more valuable they become. If in fact, I meet someone and they strike me as really different, they are hunters, let's say for this conversation. And okay. let's say that I not only do not hunt, I don't think hunting is a good idea. So I am more likely to avoid them, which means I don't get their ideas, which means that I don't value their ideas and that that's what happens. So how, when you started in the 70s, uh, working in corporate America, I think things looked a little different. I'm sure you know, there's still plenty of um, uh, biases, things that you had to overcome. How, how did you feel? What did you, um, when you came in these companies that, you know, weren't very diverse, how did you succeed? Uh, what, did, what did you do? Uh, okay, so I was both lucky and unlucky. I was lucky in that I was raised uh, in a very middle class black family. And I went to school, I went to a school that had no black children. I went to elementary school in 1956, right after Brown versus the Board of Education. And my mother said, I'm not going to put you on a bus and send you to the black school. You're going to go to the school, which is where we live. And we moved to a neighborhood in an area that was 98% white, probably 992 but really white. So I went to first grade and until I went to high school, I spent most of my time in an environment where I was one of one, one of two, one of three. The good news is it made me easier being one of one, one of two. The challenging news was um, it exposed me to things that you know children should not be exposed to. So I built a way of relating to people that was slightly different, especially relating when I am the only African American sitting at the table with the CEO and the executive team. Um, I'm the only black woman in the room of 350 um, leaders in a company. And I think that that helped me, you know, I would not yeah. want to do it to my child, but I think that it was really <laughs> helpful because it made it 
easier. The other thing that worked was I, for whatever reasons, have always been able to use analogies in a way that people can relate to. So um, many years ago, I created an analogy around you are in a boat and you are in a competitive race with other organizations. And if some of your people are rowing backwards because you won't allow them to feel like they belong, but they don't want to get fired, they don't want to get thrown out of the boat, so they'll, they'll, they'll row in reverse. And some of the people are jumping up and down because they're unhappy that you can't win this race if only some of your folks are rowing and others are not. And people took to that analogy and said, yeah, okay, I get why I need to have an environment where everyone wants to row as hard as they can so that we can win. Because whether it's a profit or a nonprofit, folks, we are about winning. We're either about winning grants, we're about winning business, we're about winning customers, we are about winning patients, we are about winning. Yeah, uh, that is a great analogy of working backwards as a group, we're trying to progress, but if you don't have everyone on the same page. Yeah, and you know, you uh, can't tell when people are rowing backwards, by the way, because the oars are under the water. You can't, you know, you can't tell if they're not really pulling. And I say to them, you don't even know that some of them are drilling little holes in the bottom of your boat. You mentioned um, sometimes you'd be in a room, you'd be the only black person or black woman out of 350 people on this board. Um, how did you convince all these people that it is um, important, that it is important to have diversity and inclusion? I always ask the question of any group. I say to them, have you ever had a problem, an issue, a challenge? And someone came up with a solution that you would never have thought of. Just, and I say to them, it could be your 14-year-old child, it could be a neighbor, it could be a colleague. Um, I tell people I have a um, wheelbarrow and I have a small shed in my backyard. And I was trying to get the wheelbarrow into the shed and I was pushing it forward with the front wheel. Now, wheelbarrows only have one wheel, so I had to go lift it up and then go back and, and pick it up. And my spouse said to me, you know, hon, if you turn around backwards and you just pull it in, you just lift it up and it rolls right in. I would never, ever have thought of that. For her, it was just a natural thing. And I say to people, that happens every day in your organization. Every day in your organization, someone has an answer to a problem that you would never think of. The more you have an environment where I think, you know, there's another way to do this, and I feel empowered and able to bring that, ah, that's where solutions come. So when I say that to people, I say to them, think about it, have you ever had that happen? And no one can go, no, no one's ever had a solution I didn't have. All of us have right. it. And it's usually things where you think, why didn't I think of that? And I say to them, that is the value of diversity. But only if you have inclusion will people tell you the answer. Otherwise, they'll watch you fail. Right. 
Um, so you mentioned it, you know, you use this for, for different organizations. What, what type of organizations do you use this for? Do these types of trainings, do you do them with law enforcement and or do you think it's something that could, uh, could benefit uh, the community interaction with law enforcement? Yeah. Okay. So that, that's two different kinds of questions for me. I, I have done this work with every conceivable organization in 50 countries on five continents. Now, the second question, so first of all, I was raised by a police officer. My father was a police officer. Uh, my niece was, it was a police officer. Three of my dearest friends are retired um, police officers. So I have a, a sort of a unique perspective on policing. Every organization has a culture, um, just like you and I have cultures that we come from. And in that culture are a set of rules and acceptable behaviors. The challenge is policing as a discipline is fundamentally, it is skewed towards um, protecting itself. And so we are now at a place where it has gotten to a to a point um, that I'm not sure how viable it will be to go on the way we are going on now with policing in communities because um, police officers get up in the morning and when they leave their house, they leave their house with a bias that says, a notion that says, someone out here wants to hurt me. Now that's because that's true. Okay, because they're going to, you know, nobody wants to get arrested and they are people who want to do crimes. Right. Many years ago, police officers actually interacted with communities. They lived in communities. They walked streets. They were known as beat cops. They met Joel. They met Maria. They met Maria at the store and they opened the door for her. She saw them as someone who, if she had a problem, she could go to. That's changed. We're now at policing is about keeping people contained. There's a belief that there are so many people who are um, using drugs, who have guns. So if I'm a police officer, I believe that the majority of people that I interact with will be bad people and you've got to prove me to the other and add to that all of the way in which our beliefs about people based on the color of their skin based on the clothing they're wearing that I use that as a quick um, way of assessing someone so I have three people walking towards me I quickly assess that the very dark-skinned person is more likely to be dangerous. And for police officers, that happens really quickly because they are heightened to danger. You and I might just sort of think it and move on. Mm-hmm. But if you say, I'm somebody who is heightened to danger, that's very different. So, And the stakes are much higher as well, oh, right? yes. So what we have to do is really to dismantle and to, in fact, enforce a very different culture that says, um, 
you are here to actually be a member of the community who is trying to help the community survive and thrive. And that's your job. Your job is not to stop people. It is, in fact, to engage people. It is to be a member of the community. So how do we kind of go back and combat some of this implicit bias? Is it by, why, or why did the police stop uh, walking in the neighborhoods and, you know, talking to the people? Is that something we should start doing again? How do we kind of bring the community together? Well, I, guess? I think that it is time for police organizations to ask themselves, what in our culture makes it possible that we see what we see on television, that we not only kill um, Mr. Floyd, but we kill other people. We kill lots more people. We kill lots more people here than we kill in any other country. And I think it's time for police leadership in police to say, what is it about our culture that says, I will shoot some people other people, I will de-escalate it and take them in. They may have committed the identical crimes, but I right. shoot one group first. And I've got to ask myself, what else in the culture doesn't allow me to have a, an officer come and say to me, um, John is a bad officer and needs to be terminated. We put up with behavior and as part of the culture that is, it's Wild West. It's, um, it's sort of loose. It is like you can pretty much do or say anything you want to if you have a gun and a badge. And it takes a hundred bad behaviors before we say, well, you know, they behaved badly last month month before last, last year, any, any other employer, okay? If you behave badly eight months, once or twice or three or five or six times over an eight-month period, you're not going to get to eight months because month two, we're like, you've got to go. That's a culture that has to change. And communities have to figure out what should, what is the need for armed people in uniforms? When do we need people with arms and uniforms? And if we did mental health, if we had places for people who are abused, if we had places for people to get educated, you know, to really get an education, right. if we had jobs, if we had equity, to what extent would that significantly reduce, potentially eliminate the need for people who are armed and uniformed? And we say to ourselves, well, but you know, you have all these people in jail. And I say, we should really look at how effective is it to lock somebody up for six years and let them out and expect them to come out and go, now I'm going to be a contributing citizen I can't get a job. I can't get housing. My family has probably um, turned their backs on me. And we say, I don't know, recidivism is very high. And I think 
Of course it is. So part of the system of problems, when we talk about systemic racism, we're not talking about just police brutality. We're talking about all the things that are connected. In organizations, I talk about the organizational culture. And I say to them, whatever you perpetuate as your culture will tell you what you get in your employee base. If you have an organization where it's okay for people to slap one another, you'll have an organization where people <laughs> slap one another. Now we say, well, that's silly. Of course, we, I say to them, that's what we say to organizations. Um, that's what organizations have to understand is that if you want inclusion to be common in, common practices, you do the things that make inclusion a common practice. Yeah, and it, and it really comes from the top too, uh, like you said. Yes. Um, so, so that kind of goes along with the next question, um, like of how realistic do you think that it would be to completely abolish um, the police? Well, I don't think it's realistic. I think that what might be realistic or what is realistic is to change the dialogue from what should we do about the police to the question of to what extent do we need people with uniforms and guns on our streets? So if you're not going to have police, you've got to have systems like mental health systems where people can go and get help. You've got to have, you can't have food insecurity because if I'm hungry and I have no way of getting food, I'm going to take some food from somewhere. If I have no job and no hope of getting a job, it matters less to me whether or not I destroy someone else's property. Yeah, You've been around for a while. You've seen uh, this type of stuff. You've seen civil rights. Again and again. Different areas. Is this any different? Um, like, do you see more companies wanting diversity and inclusion trainings on the heels of this? It's not different in a lot of ways. Um, the civil rights movement was filled with young people. And, and that's still, that's true. This is a movement of young people. Um, it's different because we have technology that we didn't have in the 60s. So if you do something, I've got it recorded here. And that... You can share it worldwide oh, in a minute or two. That's right. I mean, it goes global. That has, in many ways, influenced companies' response to inclusion and diversity because they know that if they... Um, support a cause that feels like it discriminates against African Americans. That within 10 minutes, there are hundreds of thousands of people who are contacting them. Um, they know when they make mistakes now that it will be noticed. That's the change. Um, what I've seen recently, it could affect their bottom line, right? If somebody comes in and, and films your employee saying something disrespectful, Starbucks. What, what do you think about that? Starbucks. Yeah, Starbucks, right? Okay. It's like it's filmed. People have a camera. Um, it's fast. Yeah. It's such a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much. Rosalind Taylor O'Neill, thank you so much for joining us on the Look West podcast. Thank you. So far in our series, California for Black Lives, We've talked with Assemblymember Mike Gibson about his police reform proposal, with Eva Tack, a former cop-turned-therapist, about her efforts to help police and the public 
understand the mental health impacts of the interactions between law enforcement and the communities they're supposed to serve, Assemblymember Weber about her continuing work to help Black people in California, and Rosalind Taylor O'Neill about creating more inclusive workplaces and communities. We're not done. In upcoming episodes of Look West, we'll talk with community activists about the role protests play in taking money out of the police budgets and using it to fund social services, also known as defunding the police. I'm Joel Wolfork with Look West. Stay safe. The Look West podcast is produced by the California Assembly Democrats. When you think of California and politics, remember to look west.